You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Color. Lecture 7, given in Dornach on the 10th of December, 1920, entitled Human Life in the Realms of Light and Weight. In our last talk, we dealt with the possibility of seeing, on the one hand, a moral soul quality within the natural realm, and on the other hand, of seeing in the soul realm what also exists in nature. It is precisely in this area that present-day humanity faces a disturbing enigma. It is not only the problem I have often spoken about in public lectures, namely that if we apply natural laws to the cosmos and look at the past, we have to conclude that the whole of our environment arose from some kind of primeval nebula. That is a substance of a purely material nature, which then becomes differentiated in one way or another, producing the realms of the minerals, plants, animals, and also mankind. At the end of the world, even though all this will be in a different form, it will again be of a purely physical nature. By then all the morality and ideals that arose in us will be gone and forgotten. The physical world will be one big cemetery, and all that has taken place in us on a soul level will have no significance at all when the world comes to an end, for it was only froth and bubble. On this basis, reality would consist solely of the natural kingdoms that arose physically out of primeval nebula and achieved a tremendously differentiated evolution, only to return in the end to a common cosmic slag heap. If a person is honest with himself as regards the natural scientific outlook of today, he will have to see things in the way I have just described. But this view can never build a bridge between the physical and the moral soul element. Therefore, if this view is not to lead to complete materialism, which sees material processes as the only things in existence, One needs to fabricate a kind of second world, an abstractly construed world, which would only be accessible to faith, seeing that the first world is given over to science. And the attitude of faith is, the good that arises in the human soul cannot be left unrewarded. There must be certain powers, and however philosophical the argument becomes, it comes down to this, there must be powers which reward the good and punish evil. In our times there really are people who believe in both these outlooks, despite there being no bridge between them. Some people accept all that a purely natural scientific world outlook has to offer, go along with the Kant-Laplace theory of primeval nebula at the beginning of our evolution and a burnt-out slag heap at the end of it, Yet they also have some kind of religious belief that good works will somehow find their reward and wicked sinners be punished. 
The reason why so many people nowadays are prepared to accept both views is because in present times people make so little real inner effort of soul. If people were really active in their soul life, one and the same person could not possibly accept, on the one hand, a world order which excludes the existence of morality and assume, on the other hand, powers that reward good and punish evil. Now compare these separate moral and physical world outlooks, which exist side by side because so many people nowadays are lazy in thought and feeling. Compare this with the kind of thing I told you about last time, and which came from spiritual science. I drew your attention to the fact that in the first place we perceive the world of light phenomena, that is, in external nature, we behold all that is made visible to us by what we call light. I told you that we have to regard this light as dying thoughts of the cosmos, that is, cosmic thoughts that were once in their remote past thought worlds of particular beings, worlds of thought with which cosmic beings once perceived their cosmic secrets. That which was thought in those remote ages shines down on us today as a kind of cosmic corpse, cosmic thought which is dying. This is what shines down on us as light. You need only open my title Occult Science and read the appropriate pages, and you will know that when we look back into the remote past, man did not exist in the form in which we know him today. During the Saturn evolution, for instance, all that existed of man was a kind of automaton. You know, too, that the cosmos was inhabited then, just as it is now. But at that time other beings were at the level at which man is today. We know that the spirits we call archai, or primal beginnings, were at the human state during Saturn, ancient Saturn. They were not human beings such as we are today, but they were on a human level. They were at the human stage, although they had entirely different constitution. Archangels were at the human stage during ancient sun, and so on. Thus, when we look back into remote ages, we realize that just as we live in the world as thinking beings now, in those previous earth evolutions, these other beings lived in the world as thinking beings with human characteristics. What lived in them at that time has, however, now become outer cosmic thought. But what lived in them as thought, and which would have been externally visible only as their light aura, is now beheld in surrounding space as the deeds of the light. In the deeds of the light we have to see dying worlds of thought. Darkness, of course, also plays into these deeds of the light, and as distinct from light, darkness reveals what, on a soul-spiritual level, can be called will, and in oriental terms, love. So, when we look out into the world, we see on the one hand the illumined world. But this illuminated world would be transparent to our senses, and we would not see it if darkness did not become perceptible in it. And on the first level of the soul, we have to regard this darkness interlacing the world 
as that which lives in us as will. Just as the outer world can be seen to be a harmony of darkness and light, our inner world can also be seen as light and darkness, insofar as it enters space. Only to our own consciousness, light is thought, mental image, and the darkness within us is will, which becomes virtue, love, and so on. As you see, we arrive at a world outlook in which not everything of a soul nature is soul and nothing but soul, and not everything in outer nature, sheer nature, and nothing but nature. But we arrive at a world outlook according to which outer nature is the result of earlier moral processes, and light is dying thought worlds. This makes us realize that the thoughts we bear within us, whilst they live in us in the form of thoughts, owe their origin and motivating power to a remote past. However, we are constantly sending will into our thoughts from out of the rest of our organism. For what we specifically call pure thoughts are remains from an ancient past, interpenetrated by will. So that even pure thought, as I have said most emphatically in the new edition of my title, Philosophy of Freedom, readers aside, also known as Intuitive Thinking as a Spiritual Path, which is on the written works part of the website, and a readers aside, is filled with will. Yet this part of us will go on into distant epochs of the future, at what is in us now, in its first stages of development, will then shine forth externally as outer phenomena. There will then be beings who look into the world in the way we do now on our earth, and these beings will say, quote, A world of nature gleams forth around us. Why does it gleam in the way it does? This is because of the kind of deeds men carried out on earth. For what we now see around us is the result of what earth men bore within them as new beginnings. Close quote. We are now here, beholding outer nature. We can look at it in like dry and abstract intellectuals and can analyze light and its phenomena as the physicists do in the laboratory. Then we shall be analyzing them with inner coldness. This will certainly produce some splendid, ingenious results. But we shall not be confronting nature with our full humanity. The only way to meet nature with our whole being is to feel our way into the phenomena of the colors of the sunrise, the blue of the sky, and the green of the plant, and be sensitive to what we hear in the rippling waves. For I am using the word light here with reference to all the sense impressions, and not only the light perceptible to the eye, E-Y-E. What do we actually see by means of our sense impressions? We see a world which can certainly lift up our souls and which in a certain way appears to us as being the kind of world we need in order to make a meaningful contact with a meaningful world. We are not applying our full humanity if we merely analyze the world intellectually as physicists do. To apply our full humanity we have to say to ourselves, quote, what gleams and sounds around us is the last glimmer of that which other beings developed within themselves in remote ages, and we should be thankful to them. Quote. 
Then we shall not survey the world like dry physicists, but shall be filled with gratitude to those beings who for millions of years, during the ancient Saturn epoch, lived like we do today, as human beings, and who thought and felt in such a way that we have this glorious world around us now. It is indeed a realistic world outlook if instead of making us dry intellectuals, it makes us feel full of gratitude to the beings whose thoughts and deeds in the remote past brought this impressive world of ours into existence. Just think of this picture for a moment with the necessary intensity and feel ourselves with the feeling of indebtedness to our remote ancestors for making our surroundings. Let us fill ourselves with this thought and then bring ourselves to realize that we ourselves will have to base our thoughts and feelings on the kind of moral ideal which will make the beings who come after us feel as much gratitude to us for their surrounding world as we can feel to our ancient ancestors who through the effects of their work literally surround us in shining spirits. Millions of years ago, the shining world we see today was a moral world. Millions of years hence, the moral world we now bear within us will become a shining world. Actually, only a real and proper world outlook can lead to this kind of feeling for the world. An inferior world outlook may lead to all kinds of ideas and theories about the world, but it does not fill a person's inner being for it leaves his feelings empty. This also has a really practical side to it, although modern man hardly appreciates it as yet. However, anyone who sincerely cares about the fate of the world knows he cannot allow it to go to ruin. He would prefer to envisage a school or college of the future to which people do not go every morning at nine o'clock with the same uncaring indifference and leave again at twelve or one o'clock with the same uncaring indifference having gained nothing, save possibly a little pride at having become even cleverer still, assuming this is so, no, we can look forward to a future perspective where those who come out at twelve or one o'clock leave college with feelings for the world which reach out to the cosmos, because in addition to cleverness they have been given a feeling of gratitude for world becoming, gratitude to the remote past, when beings actively worked to form our natural surroundings in the way they are, and a feeling for the tremendous responsibility which falls to us through the fact that our moral impulses will in course of time become shining worlds. It stays mere belief, of course, if you want to go and tell people that the primeval nebula and the final slag heap are real. And in between there are people who have illusions of morality which pop up like bubbles. Their faith does not tell them that, of course, though it would have to do so if it were really sincere. Is it not entirely different if a person says to himself, quote, There is such a thing as retribution, for nature itself is so arranged to include the fact that one's thought will become shining light, close quote the moral world order will come to revelation. What at one time is the moral world order is at another time the physical world order. 
And what at one time is the physical world order was at another time the moral world order. Everything of a moral nature is destined to become physical. If man can look at nature spiritually, does he need further evidence of a moral world order? No, for nature understood in its spiritual aspect is itself the justification for a moral world order. You arrive at this picture when you look at man in his full humanity. Let us begin with an everyday phenomenon. We know that sleeping and waking are due to man disengaging himself in his ego and astral body from his physical and etheric bodies. What does this actually signify with regard to the cosmos? Imagine the physical body, etheric body, astral body and ego combined in the waking state. Now, imagine them divided in the sleeping state. What is the actual cosmic difference between them? The difference is that during the sleeping state you experience light. In experiencing light, you experience the dying thought world of bygone ages. And as you experience this dying thought world of bygone ages, you acquire the tendency to be receptive to perceiving the spirit that stretches into the future. It makes no difference that man has only a dim perception of this as yet. The important thing at the moment is that whilst in this state, we are sensitive to the light. When we return to our bodies, we become inwardly sensitive in our souls to the darkness, in contrast to the light. However, this is not merely negative, for we become sensitive to something else as well. Just as in sleep we were sensitive to the light, when we wake up we become sensitive to heaviness. We are, however, souls, not scales. We do not become sensitive to heaviness by weighing our body, but on returning to our body, we become sensitive to heaviness inwardly in our souls. Do not be surprised if to begin with it sounds somewhat vague. As far as soul experience is concerned, ordinary consciousness is just as asleep in the waking state as it is in the sleeping state. With today's normal consciousness, a person is not aware in sleep of his existence in the light, nor is he aware in the waking state of his existence in heaviness. Yet it is so that a sleeping person's fundamental experience is of living in light. During sleep, his soul is not sensitive to heaviness, to the fact of heaviness. Heaviness is, as it were, taken from him. He exists in buoyant light. Heaviness is outside his ken. His first acquaintance with heaviness is in an inner way, subconsciously to begin with. But imagination sees at once that man becomes acquainted with heaviness the moment he returns to his body. This is seen by spiritual scientific research in the following way. When you have raised yourself to the level of imaginative knowledge, you can observe the etheric body of a plant. You will then have the inner experience of the plant's etheric body constantly pulling it upward, of it being weightless. On the other hand, if you look at the etheric body of a human being, it has heaviness, even for imaginative perception. You simply feel that it is heavy. 
And this makes you realize that man's etheric body is something that lends heaviness to the soul when it is in the body. This is, however, an archetypal phenomenon which is supersensible. During sleep, the soul lives in light, therefore in buoyancy. When the soul is awake, it lives in heaviness. The body is heavy. This force becomes transferred to the soul. The soul lives in weight. This signifies something which is then conveyed to consciousness. Think of the moment of waking. What does it consist of? When you are asleep, you lie in bed and you do not move. Your will is paralyzed. Your mental images are paralyzed too, of course. That is only because the will is paralyzed and not shooting into your body and making use of your senses. Paralysis of the will is the chief cause. What brings movement into the will? It is the fact that the soul feeling weight through the body. It is the way the soul lives in combination with the other parts of our being that gives us earthly human beings our power of will. And a person stops using his will when he is in the light. This gives you a picture of the two cosmic forces of light and heaviness, which are the two great polarities in the cosmos. Light and weight are indeed cosmic polarities. Think of the planet where weight pulls toward the center and light points away from the center out into the cosmos. There's a picture. We think of light as keeping still, whereas in actual fact it indicates a movement from the planet outward. Whoever thinks of weight as a force of attraction, as Newton did, is a rather radical materialist, because he is imagining a kind of genie sitting inside the earth holding a cord, which, although you cannot see it, is pulling the stone toward him. We actually speak of a force of attraction, although no one can prove its existence except in theory. People would not fancy making an illustration of it, but they do like using the term force of attraction in the Newtonian sense. In course of time it will come about in Western civilization that everything in existence will have to be imagined in some way in visible form. So we could say to people, quote, Well, now, you like imagining the force of attraction as an invisible cord. Therefore, you should at least imagine light as an outward raying movement, as a centrifugal force. Close quote. Light would have to be thought of as a centrifugal force. For people who want to keep more to reality, it is enough simply to understand the polarity, the cosmic polarity between light and weight. Now, particularly in the case of us human beings, lots of things depend on what I have just told you. When we look at the daily occurrence of sleeping and waking, we can say, quote, On falling asleep, a person passes from the realm of weight into the realm of light. Close quote. In this realm, when a person has been living without weight long enough, he acquires a hearty longing to be immersed in weight, so he returns to it and wakes up. Waking up and going to sleep are a perpetual oscillation between living in light and living in heaviness. If a person develops a finer sensitivity, he will have a direct personal experience of this feeling of rising from weight into light and of being received again by weight on awakening. But now, make a mental picture of something else. Think of the fact that between birth and death 
man as a being is bound to the earth. He is thus bound to the earth because, having spent a period of time in the light, when he comes into the situation of life between birth and death, his soul keeps getting hungry for weight and therefore returns to it. When the time comes, and we shall say more about this, when a situation arises in which this hunger for weight is no longer there, the human being will increasingly follow the light. He does this up to a certain boundary, and there's a diagram. He follows the light to a certain limit, and when he has arrived at the outer periphery of the cosmos, he will have used up everything that weight gave him between birth and death, and a fresh longing for weight will then arise in him, and he will start out on the way back to a new incarnation. So even in the interval between death and rebirth, in the midnight hour of existence, a kind of hunger for weight arises. We are starting from the commonest concept for the kind of longing the human being has for returning to a new life on earth. However, on his way to this new earth life, the human being will have to pass through the sphere of the other neighboring planetary bodies. These have all kinds of different effects on him, and he brings the results of this with him into physical life through conception and birth. So you will realize that it is important to ask, quote, what is the situation with regard to the stars in the spheres man passes through? Close quote. For his longing for earthly weight takes on a different form according to the way the human being passes through the planetary spheres. It is not only the earth which, as it were, rays out a certain heaviness, which the human being longs to return to, but the other planetary bodies through whose spheres he passes on the way to a new life also affect him with their kind of heaviness. So on his return journey, a human being can come into various different situations which justify our saying the following. On his way back to earth, a human being has the longing to live once again in earthly heaviness. First of all, though, he passes through the sphere of Jupiter. Now Jupiter also rays out heaviness. But this is of a kind which adds a quality of joy to man's longing for earthly weight. So, now, his longing for earth weight will have a joyful mood. Then the human being passes through the sphere of Mars. He longs for earth weight. He already has a joyful mood. Mars also affects him with its weight and adds to this joyful longing for earth weight an active drive to enter earth weight in such a manner as to make strong use of the next physical life. The soul has now reached the point of having acquired in its subconscious depths an impulse of longing for earth weight so as to make energetic use of earthly incarnation in such a manner that joyful yearning, yearning joy, can come to energetic expression. Man also passes through the sphere of Venus. A loving attitude to life's tasks is now added to this joyful longing to be energetically active. Notice that we are speaking of different kinds of weight emanating from cosmic bodies and bringing them into connection with what can live in the soul. 
we shall attempt once again to speak about what surrounds us spatially and physically in cosmic space at one and the same time in moral terms. If it is the case that the will element lives in weight and light is the polar opposite of will, then we are justified in saying Mars reflects light, Jupiter reflects light, and Venus reflects light. The forces of weight also contain the modification brought about in them by light. We know that dying cosmic thoughts live in the light and that will seeds of future worlds live in the forces of weight. All this rays through the souls as they pass through space. We are thinking of the world physically and at the same time morally. The physical and the moral are not separate. It is only man's limited nature which tempts him to say that we have the physical world here and the moral world there. No, they are only two different ways of looking at one world. The world which is developing into light is also developing into retribution, a retribution which will be revealed. A meaningful world order is coming to revelation out of the natural world order. We must be clear that we shall not acquire this kind of world outlook by means of a philosophical interpretation, but that one gradually grows into it by learning from spiritual science how to spiritualize physical concepts. They then become moral of themselves. And when one learns to look through the physical world into this world where physical things have ceased to be and the spiritual element is present, then one knows that that is where the moral element is to be found. Actually, people could arrive at this outlook today in a thoroughly scholarly manner if they only worked through certain ideas. I will close by bringing you this, although it will be outside the ken of most of you. Here you have this line, which is not an ellipse, for it has a wider curve. There's diagrams you will see the line a great deal in the Gertianum. The ellipse would be like that. That is just a variation of this line. Actually, you alter the mathematical equation. This line... Excuse me. Maybe that again. This is just a variation of this line. Actually, if you alter the mathematical equation, this line can also take on this form, the lemniscate. So from a, virt- a, 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 a ellipsoid shape to a, a lemniscate shape. That is the same line as the other one. First I will go round it like this and stop here. But another time, under certain assumptions, I do not move up to the top, but round this way and back again and stop down here. This same line has got another form again. This time, if I start here, I only appear to stop here. I now have to leave this plane, leave space, go over here and come back again here. Readers aside, I know this is difficult to understand here. I'm just going to try a description. On the left he has a lem- uh, a, an, uh, an ellipsoid and inside it another ellipsoid. On the right he has an ellipsoid. Inside it he has uh, drawn uh, a lemniscate. But then inside each lemniscate he has drawn sort of a teardrop, right side up on the bottom, upside down on the top as it were. That sort of correspond to the shapes of the ellipsoid. I believe he's talking about lifting the pen up out of the plane to draw the other one since they don't connect. 
the lines on those two inner circles inside the lemniscate circles. Uh, I hope that makes a little more sense because I know this is difficult right here. End of readers aside. Then I have to leave space again, carry on with the line here and stop below. The line has just been somewhat modified. It is not two lines. It is only one. And it only has one mathematical equation. It is one single line, only it goes out of space. If we continue this idea, there is the other possibility. I can simply take this line, lemniscate, but I can also imagine that half of it is here in space, and when I come round here I have to go out of space. I must leave space. And then I finish it like this. Here is the other half, only it is outside ordinary space, not inside it. But it is there. Now, if people were to develop this method of thought, which mathematicians, for instance, could certainly do nowadays, they would arrive at the other way of leaving space and returning again. This absolutely accords with reality. For each time you resolve to do something, you think about what you intend doing. Before you engage your will, you go out of space. And when you move your hand, you enter space again. In between... You are outside space, on the other side of it. This idea must really be developed, of the other side of space. Then one would really get hold of the idea of what the supersensible is like. And above all, one would grasp the idea of morality in its reality. With today's world outlook, it is so difficult to imagine what morality is really like, because people insist on visualizing everything in space and judging it according to measure, weight, and number, whereas in actual fact reality goes beyond space and returns to it again at every point in space. There are people who imagine a solar system with comets in it and who say, quote, a comet appears, passes through a tremendously long ellipse, and comes back again after a long time. Close quote. This is not true of a great number of comets. In their case, the comets make their appearance, then they vanish here and cease to exist, but reform from the other side and come back here, altogether describing lines which do not return. Why? Because the comets go out of space and return in quite a different place. It is absolutely possible in the cosmos for comets to vanish out of space and return to space in a different place. When we continue with these talks tomorrow, I will not torment you any more with ideas such as I have been giving you during the last ten minutes, because I know they would be far removed from the usual ideas of the majority of you. But I sometimes have to mention that the kind of spiritual science we have here could stand up to the most learned scientific concepts if the opportunity arose if, in other words, there was the chance to bring spirit into all the subjects that are taught in such a lifeless way today, particularly in the so-called exact sciences. Unfortunately, there is no such possibility. Things like mathematics, in particular, are usually taught in the dullest way imaginable today. Therefore, as I emphasized in a recent public lecture in Basel, we have to make do for the time being with presenting spiritual science to educated laymen, for which many would-be scholars reproach us. 
If the scholars were not so lazy in their attitude to spiritual views, spiritual science would not need to restrict its presentations to cultured laymen, for it can deal with the most advanced scientific ideas and is sufficiently aware of its responsibility to do so with total exactitude. Nevertheless, the kind of attitude scientists have to these things is quite extraordinary. There was a learned gentleman whom I mentioned recently in my public lecture and who had obviously heard that high school courses had been given here in Dornach. He had already heard something about the Waldorf School and had apparently read my speech at the opening of the school in the Waldorf News and another essay as well. In the context of my opening speech, I made a reference to an educationalist who in many respects belongs, belonged to the same school of thought as this learned gentleman. Critics who persistently accuse anthroposophy of leading to suggestion or autosuggestion are immediately hypnotized when they hear someone mentioned who is a partisan of theirs. At that point the gentleman became all ears. He obviously got the wind up at all interesting phrase, let me read that again. He obviously got the wind up at all that was going on at the Dornach High School courses, so he could not resist writing the following, quote, At the high school courses run by the anthroposophists in Dornach, near Basel, this autumn, the hope was expressed that it might be a center from which powerful ideas would inaugurate a new evolution of our nation and instill it with new life. Anyone who examines the true value of the ethical principles of this movement cannot share this hope, and the preceding lines are intended to encourage you to examine them. Now, why were these preceding lines, in quotes, actually written? The ethical principles of the high school courses must be critically examined, for they are bound to have something to do with what a man like that wishes to expound, which is what he calls moral depression. For he begins his essay, to which he gives the title ethical heresy like this, quote, During a moral depression such as the German people have never before experienced, it is doubly necessary to defend our great landmarks of morality erected by Kant and Herbart, and not to have them displaced in favor of relative tendencies. The statement of Baron von Stein that a nation can only remain strong by upholding the virtues which made it strong must be considered to be one of our most urgent duties today when all our moral concepts are breaking down. Now, the fellow fixes the date of this breakdown of moral concepts as post-war and finds one thing particularly remarkable, quote, that an article by the leader of the anthroposophists in Germany, Dr. Rudolf Steiner, has something to do with this breakdown of morality is especially regrettable, as one cannot deny that the movement has a character of idealism the aim of which is to lay special emphasis on the inner development of the individual. He got this phrase from a few essays in the title Waldorf News. And there are healthy, socially constructive thoughts in his plan of a threefold ordering of society, as was discussed in Talk number 222. Yet in his book titled The Philosophy of Freedom, He takes such an exaggerated view of the individual that it is bound to lead to a breakdown of society and must therefore be opposed. You see from this that the philosophy of freedom 
was written in 1918 during the moral depression resulting from the war. The philosophy of freedom had existed for decades by then, but obviously it did not bother the good fellow until in 1918 he read the latest edition so carefully that he did not notice how old the book was and that it definitely originated at the time he referred to as the peak years of enlightenment, a long time before he talked about moral depression. So much for the conscientiousness of these educators of the young. The man is not only a professor of philosophy, he is primarily an educationalist. That is, he not only has to teach at universities, but he has to educate children. And he himself is so well educated that he discovers that the philosophy of freedom has been written in 1918. So it is an easy matter for him to comment on the purpose of this book. Remember the actual situation. The philosophy of freedom appeared in 1893. So that was when the ideas arose. Bearing in mind when the philosophy of freedom was published, whatever sense can the following words have, which form the climax of his whole essay. Quote, These free people around Dr. Steiner are no longer human. They have already become angels on earth. Anthroposophy helped them achieve this. Close quote. Now I ask you, the philosophy of freedom appears in 1893, published with the intention of supplying people with a morality which anthroposophy helps them achieve. Quote, Ought it not to be an unspeakable blessing to be transported to such a place in the midst of all the confusion of earth existence, assuming that a small number of people succeed in shedding their entire human nature and rising to purer existence, where it is possible to be really free and beyond the reach of good and evil? What is there left for the vast masses of the people who are inextricably tied to all the stresses and strains of physical life? Close quote. As you see, the thing is presented in such a way as if the philosophy of freedom has been published in Berlin in 1918 and anthroposophy existed for the purpose of developing the kind of people described in the philosophy of freedom. This shows how scrupulous our scholars are when they write about things nowadays. Doctor of Theology writes with similar scruples about our having constructed a nine-meter-high statue of Christ with luciferic features on its upper part and animal characteristics below, whereas the fact of the matter is that our Christ statue has an ideal, truly human countenance and is just a block of wood beneath, because it has not even been worked on yet. This doctor of theology doesn't just describe it as though he had heard it from someone or other, but writes as though he had been there himself and confirmed it. I cannot help being reminded of an anecdote which I mentioned in the public lecture in Basel about how to prove whether you are sober or drunk when you get home in the evening. Lie down in bed and place a top hat in front of you on the bedclothes. If it looks like a hat, you are sober, and if you see it double, you are drunk. You must be in that condition at the very least to see our Christ statue like that doctor of theology saw it. However, quite apart from these attacks he makes, the incident could well bring one to ask what kind of theologians they are, what sort of Christians they are, what sort of educators of the young they are, if they have that kind of relationship to truth and reality, and what kind of science we can expect if it is administered with those sort of feelings for truthfulness. Actually, it is mostly that type of science 
that is given out in lecture halls and books nowadays, and humanity lives on it. Among all its other tasks, spiritual science has to clear our spiritual atmosphere of all the phantoms of insincerity and untruthfulness, untruthfulness, which not only govern external life, but whose existence has even filtered down deep into the various sciences themselves. And it is the depths of these very sciences that are responsible for many a thing that is having such devastating effects on social life. We must summon the courage to see these things in the proper light. For this, however, we shall need to warm to a world outlook which forms a real bridge between the moral and the physical world order, inasmuch as the shining sun can also be looked on as a concentration of dying thought worlds, and that which rises up from the depths of the earth can also be seen to be the element of will in the world, germinating and developing into the future. The end of Lecture 7